0: certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at Lucent Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim?
1: Now, one man stands accused. If police are right, and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years.
0: The night Sarah Spears vanished, she called for a cab. Today, for the first time, we hear from the taxi driver dispatched to pick her up. Welcome to Claremont in Conversation. I'm Natalie Bonjolo joined by criminal lawyer, Damien Cripps, and from court, Tim Clark. Um, Tim, you know, last week we heard that voice recording of Sarah Spears calling for a cab, and today you got the next piece to this puzzle.
2: Yes, so um, we heard, as you said in your intro, we heard from the man, who um, basically hit the button on his onboard computer um, on that fare after that call was made and was literally just around the corner. Um, he said it basically took him two minutes from where he was to where he was supposed to be. Um, and in that time, uh, between that call and when he got there, um, when he did get there, there was there was no one there. Um, and obviously, we now know that um, the person that was supposed to be there has, has, has never been seen again.
0: And was he asked if that was unusual for a fair not to be there, or you know do they radio back and say there's a no show or anything like that
2: well not really so mr, mr. Krupnik, um uh, he's a, a a czech gentleman who who's uh, who had been driving cabs for for many years um he said he, he i mean he knew the area obviously as as most taxi drivers back in that um era would have done um at uh, sort of 2 a.m. on a Friday, Saturday or Sunday night, that would be your bread and butter as a taxi driver. Mm-hmm. So what he said was when he um, when he approached the, the corner and didn't see anyone standing there, he did a left and did another left, mm-hmm. basically towards back towards um, the entertainment area in Claremont, uh, including Club Bayview, and, and very quickly picked up another fare. Um, during Miss Barbagawa's opening last week, she said that, ironically, um, one of the people in that group of three that he picked up was actually an acquaintance of Sarah, and they asked to go to Mosman Park, which is where Sarah was obviously uh, aiming to get to as well. Um, and so, once again, the, these little tiny sliding doors moments, mm. whether Mr. Kruknick had, you know, gone a little bit faster or, you know, got a red light, not a green light, or a green light, not a red light... Um, and uh, and then, as it turned out, um, Sarah wasn't there um, when he went past, but then we, the next witness that we heard from this afternoon um, was in the same area, almost exactly the same time of night, and did see um, a young lady leaning on a Telstra bollard on that corner at uh, almost um, exactly the same time.
0: And so who was this guy?
2: Um, so this was a, a chap... Um, uh, Mr. Mr. Panel, Alec Panel, who's giving evidence from the UK. And he'd been out with a, a couple of his mates um, to the Conti and the Club Bayview. I mean, they must have been the busiest nightclubs in, in, in Western Australia that night because we've heard from so many people who were there or very close to. Um, and he had got into his, – his friend was driving um, that night, so they'd got into his car and they drove um, uh, down the street and um, – the 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 lone female that they saw standing there was was um was so notable at least to the driver that he actually commented to Mr Pannell um, you know look at that young woman and so he did and he saw a, a slim um you know late teen early 20 young lady um with her arms crossed looking like she was waiting for someone or looking out for someone um in, in exactly the exact same spot where um where she said she was going to be when she called the the taxi rank so um, yeah, just and and so many years on to 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 hear those once again, those intimate details about a moment in time that has basically um captivated the state ever since is um yeah, it's quite remarkable.
0: yeah, I, I can't help but wonder why. I mean, why was that memorable back then? because, like you said, you know that I'm from that vintage and I went out in that area um during those years as well. And there was so many people walking around and looking for cabs at that time of the night, it wasn't unusual and I can't help but wonder why that kind of um, stood out to them.
2: Well, I I mean, I I take it that as the investigation um, as Sarah's disappearance became obviously um, critical for the police, and the investigation sort of wound up, um, the police were certainly able to obviously track down the taxi driver through this one taxi's records about who had taken that um, um, taken that fare. Um, and then uh, I'm, I'm assuming, as as the um, sort of canvas for information went round, it must have jogged something in Mr. Panosson and his and his friends' memories, and so they made a statement as well. So. Um, uh, yeah, and mean, uh, I mean, and that that sort of that that whole era, um, which we've sort of known about but not known the details of um, for so long, um, is now just you know, but moment by moment and hour by hour being being laid out by the prosecutors um, in front of our eyes.
0: Yeah, and you did hear from more of these um, Telstra living witnesses today as well, and it really does give such a. I don't know, an incredible feeling of, of what it was like back then because some of their accounts are really chilling.
2: Yes, I mean, chilling and uh, of another era. Um, I, know, I, I know Damien's um, nightclubbing days are legendary around <laughs> the legal circle, so he's probably done a bit more of it than I did. But, um, uh, yeah, and, and the fact that even, I mean, we've heard previously, even, you know, the last two, um, um, the last... Uh, after the two girls were missing, and then three girls were missing, there were—I mean, you know—there were still people hitchhiking and, yeah. and and getting around Perth with, with you know, late at night, um, sort of slightly intoxicated, with no nice shoes. And uh, and the last living witness of the day, and the last witness of the day, was was possibly one of the more interesting ones, because um, she gave an account of of the night, the night after Sarah went missing, when she was on in on Stirling Highway by the hungry jacks which you've heard so much about and she was basically she's how she described being eyeballed by the driver of a white telstra car um who, who'd pulled over and was basically staring straight at her um for you know as a, a long enough time for her to get concerned and basically you know tell him or ask him quite loudly what do you want what are you doing um and um she was of such interest to the police that um, in late '98, when obviously the the triple murder investigation was in full swing, um, she made an identikit or, or gave the police a, a description um, of the man that she said she saw in this car and uh, and had and had unnerved her, um, and um, we got to, to see that identikit and uh, today in court, and I've got to say it didn't bear much resemblance to Mr Edwards um, the accused either then or now so um, that sort of um, throws another little um, spanner in the works uh, of, of the um, of the prosecution and if you remember back to Mr Jovich's opening he said oh well, look the prosecution want to paint this neat little picture pretty little picture of all you know all these you know really um, regular common sightings of Telstra cars and you know the, the man was basically the same looking and, and seeing that identicate in, in, in you know glorious black and white today, um, that was one of the rough edges that Mr Jovich said that he would um, point towards mm. um, uh, within this, this this so-called living witness package of evidence that prosecutors are, are continue to bring.
0: So Damien, would that be quite important to um, Mr Jovich, that identicate and that it doesn't resemble the accused? Well,
1: Tim, I do really appreciate your reference to my nightclub days. <laughs> I don't have any nightclub days. I was always out seeing bands, I should say. <laughs> but um, in in response to that, Nat, when I try to think about a case like this or any case that I would be working on, I look at the position of the prosecution as needing to build a jigsaw and they need to put all the pieces together so that the, the jury or the judge or whoever is making the decision... <coughs> excuse me, can see the full picture. Mm. So what Tim's talking about there, and all the listeners will be experiencing it, and um, if they're listening every day, they'll be hearing slowly, but surely little pieces of the puzzle coming together. Now, remember that the puzzle, in my view, just my view, that the puzzle the puzzle has to be completed. It can't have missing pieces. Um, so when we get to a point where we have an identity, uh, identity kit put forward, which doesn't resemble the accused person. If you think about it in the jigsaw terms of things, there's a piece that kind of doesn't fit. Yeah. So it does work for the prosecution, but um, I think it's also important to think about it in the, in the manner that you, you need to get all the pieces to fit, but just because one piece doesn't fit doesn't mean it might not go somewhere else. So yeah, it might know. be an issue of that location not being right, Yep. um and I know because I I always try to think about what it's like for people who don't work in the law or have not been journalists and have worked around the courts for a long time and how they might be thinking about the way things are unfolding um, and and it's daunting to try to you know someone was listening to this podcast and I know a lot of people are and people are trying to keep up with everything that's going on, and Tim and Nat and everyone involved is doing a great job um, of doing that. Um, but if you think about it as the jigsaw puzzle, that identity kit is just, is just one piece that didn't fit in, and perhaps right. it comes in later on.
0: The woman who um, was basically you know, stared down by this man in a Telstra car, what was she like in court today what was her demeanor when she was giving evidence
2: oh i mean she she I mean, she, she was very sure of the evidence that she was giving and um today and at the time but um there were you have to say there were significant discrepancies between her description of of what the man looked like yeah. of the car she said it was definitely not a wagon where as we know all the other witnesses have said it was um so i mean she was very certain of what she was saying But whether whether it was completely accurate or not, whether her memories—I mean, obviously her memories faded now—but I mean this was based also on statements that she'd given at the time. Um, uh, She she was she was certain of of her recollection, Um, and as I'm I'm sure Damien's encountered numerous times. um, People can be very sure of what they remember, but whether they're remembering right or not is uh, is another matter completely.
1: Yeah. So, Tim, just on that point, it's a mm. really, really important thing um, to remember is that what people give evidence about is their version of events. Yeah. And their version of events is what their mind positively tells them happened so it's not always the case in my experience it's only my experience that people are lying it might be the case that um, Nat says the car was red and she genuinely believes the car was red it was it was a year ago that this car accident happened and I say that the car was blue and it genuinely was so so I think that's an important point for people to remember that you know I think studies have shown that people's memories will let them down yes
0: um, we know that uh, this young woman didn't get into the car, but you heard today from a young woman who did.
2: Yes. So that was that was another of the Telstra living witnesses, and she was basically the friend of a witness that gave evidence yesterday. You might remember we, we touched on the lady that got into the back of a Telstra car and remembered seeing a lot of wires and a lot of tools, yes. and then her friend basically yanked her, her, out. her out. Well, the um, the... Friend, the the witness today was the Yanka.
0: Nice. Um,
2: she was the, the lady that got into the front of the car. Um, she wasn't. They, they they she basically described they'd had a, they had a big big night out. Um, uh, double figures double figures of, of, of drinks, um, middies as we call them in here in Western Australia. That's a sort of half pint or a um, or a schooner or uh, yeah. I mean you know not not a not a full drink, but uh, plenty of them anyway. Right. And um, yeah, and she described how how um, they um, tried to get a try to get a cab failed. Um, this car pulled over. She couldn't remember the conversation that preceded her, them getting into the car, but she certainly said she remembered getting into the car, um, and then they drove off. Um, And then her next distinct memory, the way she described it, was she just had a very strong instinct that they needed to exit the vehicle. Um, And so that's what she did. She told him to stop. Oh, we might actually go to Club Bay View, if you don't mind. We'll just pull over here. Um, She got around to the other side, yanked her friend out of the car, um, and and he drove off. Um, But unfortunately, you might remember from yesterday's podcast, the, uh, the lady in the back, Miss um, Smith, um, had, had just had been just been about to say something that her friend had said to her about what the man had said to had done to basically proceed this this action. But unfortunately, the, the witness today um, she couldn't actually remember um, distinctly or more precisely shouldn't couldn't remember accurately enough to trust her account to tell the, the court. What it was that he'd said or done that had made her feel uneasy, but she certainly remembered that there was that gut instinct, that very um, primal instinct that she described of wanting to get out of the car, and so, and so that what that's that's what that's what she did.
0: Yeah, because I think the only words I think from what I've looked through and read, the only words that the friend yesterday, which was Trulby, mm-hmm. um, had said, was something like that man was yeah. And, and, that, and that
2: was, that was it. That, that was this sort of, you know, she described basically how she got yanked out of the car. What are you doing, Annabelle? Um, uh, why have you done that? And then she ju- was just about to go and say, "My friend told me that man was mm. dot dot dot." Um, but as Damien will. We'll, we'll, much better described to me hearsay evidence is something that you've heard someone say Mm -hmm. not something you've said yourself or seen with your own eyes and so the judge stopped her before or the court stopped her before she could say it and then unfortunately the the witness today either couldn't remember or couldn't remember sufficiently well enough to trust herself to, to say it under oath um, and so, she, and so she didn't. But the overriding impression you got from that witness was that there was an atmosphere or a, 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 an instinct that she had in that car um, after quite a short distance of it moving that um, that said to her, "We need to get out." And so that's what she did.
0: That must have just played on her mind for so many years. Well, that's—I
2: mean, that, thats the underlying sort of tension to all this. All this Living witness evidence, obviously. I mean, we've got to point out it's not been proved yet that it, this is Mr. Edwards, and I don't think it could ever possibly be proved conclusively that it is him. But as we said before, it's the weight, it's the, mm. it's it's the, you know, the the coincidence of it all. Um, but you join the dots, and you, 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 I mean, you do, and you certainly think. I wonder what these women were thinking at the time. They yeah. were obviously thinking enough to give a give a statement to the police which is which is not a which is not a um, a light thing to do um, and, and, and then to, and then those statements were obviously given in the background of girls going missing so what they thought then and what they must still think now um having to give evidence um you know in front of in some cases the man that the prosecution say we think he was the man who picked you up and we also think he's committed these three horrible crimes
1: Tim, just in relation to those um, those two girls that you were talking about there, mm. obviously I haven't been in the court like you have mm. and haven't heard their evidence and experienced the room when they're giving their evidence. Um, but one thing that comes to my mind, which is quite interesting, is that these two witnesses have been led by the prosecution um, potentially to show that a man that was working for Telstra um, was driving around in his van picking people up. Mm. Mm. And and that certainly um, has an interesting suggestion w- with it. But I, I prompt people to think about the reverse of that as well. Is that from what I can understand, well, I wasn't there, didn't hear the evidence. But what I can f- from I can understand is the, um, he let them out and they walked off and Correct. he he drove yes. away. So sometimes um, it gets lost in a lot of. The momentum of what's trying to be achieved with the jigsaw puzzle. I keep going mm-hmm. back to it. That that effectively, perhaps, the simple generosity of a human being who stopped to pick somebody up mm. might be getting lost in something that terrible was going on in the area at the time.
0: But I, I, I take your point, Damien. Of course, because you know we've obviously got a bloke called Lance Williams who was out there. <laughs> thinking he was doing the right thing, driving around, helping or, or wanting to help vulnerable women. And, of course, you know, he was then hounded by police for decades.
1: It, 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 um, I'm glad you brought that up, Nat, because I think that's completely relevant to say. Yeah. And not legally, it's just it's about the, the way you view things. It's like Lance Williams went through what he went through back then yeah. simply because he was trying to help people. Yeah. So um, good thoughts to have in, in amongst all the other... Um, moral and legally testing questions that are ongoing here.
0: Mm. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of detail today about Bradley Edwards' um, employment history, too, wasn't there, Tim?
2: Yes. So, this is part of the glamour of court reporting that we uh, sat through about three and three hours of evidence okay. about pay slips and um work records and leave applications and um someone very senior from Telstra was called in to do it um just flown over from Melbourne for for the purpose mm-hmm. but there was a purpose to it obviously I'm being flippant um it, and it was, and it basically went to Mr Edwards's work history um and when he when he first was employed when he was promoted um and when he, when he when he was taken leave and um, what his responsibilities were his qualifications and, and, and that type of thing and it might it might sound it might sound very dry and it was but it was it was there for a purpose um three really um it it showed that um when Mr Edwards was on leave um mainly and um, we heard um earlier this week that when Telstra employees that had or were in a in a sort of part payment plan on their car, so their, their work car became their leisure car at certain times, if they were on leave for more than two weeks, um that car had to go into the depot. They couldn't take it on holiday with them. Um and so the prosecution would want to say, well, Mr. Edwards wasn't on leave for the times around mm. the murders. And so he would have had access to his car, which is o- o- obviously of critical importance, particularly um, Jane and Sarah, because they are then going to point to fibers and, 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 and the like that they say meant that the girls were in that car. Mm. Um, there was also, a, a, the, in, the other interesting sideline was, um, they had all these records about Mr. Edwards's leave and applications and cars and promotions and work records and applications. But they didn't have any record, not one piece of paper that said that um, they were aware that he'd attacked someone while working at, at, at for Telstra at Hollywood Hospital in May 1990. So um, um, the, um, the, the the payroll manager from Telstra, who was very proud of, of his archive or, or his company's archiving, um, was that was the last question he was asked. Um, uh, Do you, you have any records of that? And uh, no. he said, just one word,
0: no. I just still find this extraordinary because I just think, you know, if, Damien, I went to your workplace and I was representing my company and I decided to bop you in the nose and was charged with common assault, I just can't fathom that my employer wouldn't have been informed of that.
1: OK, so let's go back a little bit, Nat, just in, in relation to that, and, and I might be able to put some insight into that. 1990, and Tim, you might have some information on this as well, for, mm. not just for me but for the listeners as well, How would it be that Telstra would become aware of that?
2: Um, Well, that's a very good question. Um, He was on a job um, and had been on a job at the Hollywood Hospital, but he was arrested on the day. Um, The leave um, records today showed that he took one hour's unpaid leave the following day after his arrest. Um, He pleaded guilty on the 11th of May, which is four days after, and then there was a month leading up to that to to his arrest. Sentencing. He'd spoken to two psychologists in that time, as we learned yesterday. He was sentenced to two years probation, placed on a sex offender programme. So, so, yeah, within, so. It, within all that, you wouldn't you might think that someone from Hollywood might give Telstra a call, someone yeah. from the police might Telstra a call, but who knows? Uh, we don't know. We haven't had any evidence, and there certainly wasn't any evidence on the Telstra records that that they had been informed.
0: So he only took a he took a day of leave after. No, one hour. One only hour one hour, hour of, they of leave. leave.
2: The day, the day after. Yes. So
1: my my point is that um, back in nineteen ninety, it was a completely different system. There was no internet. Mm. The, the, the court reporting was set up differently, mm. um, and and you know it's possible that. He was at the job on his own, and the incident took place where, in a time when um, there wasn't a lot of people around, especially not um, his work colleagues, and he um, simply just went through the process of, uh, of getting a lawyer, going and entering his plea, and going through all the process. A lot of that information would have been privileged. Uh, the, yeah. the, the, the hospitals. It's very different now, though. I mean, it, it, I think if you find and most people, most listeners will know that in your in your place of employment these days, they you are required to provide a police clearance on a yearly basis. I'm not sure that that would have been the case back but, then.
0: But presumably you're out doing your job. You don't come back because the cops have come and and dragged you away to charge you. Yeah, so well, doesn't someone that notice that... that you don't come back to work that day?
2: Well, he was working off site, obviously, and had been for for a mm. little bit, I think. Um, the assault was around about four o'clock. So it was late in the afternoon. Mm. So we, as we learned yesterday, the assault was, 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 was quick um the the um security guard basically called him red handed or 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 certainly light red handed straight after the police were then called so what's to say that i mean and this is obviously all speculation we 've not heard anything about it but what 's to say the police didn't take him down do their interview he was uh, we we do know he missed picking up his first wife at the time because she said that in her evidence and that's yeah. so that's five thirty um um, was to say that he wasn't at home by by seven o'clock, and then you know, basically took an hours of unpaid leave to try and explain himself to his wife the day after, <laughs> and, then, and then went back to work. We just don't know.
0: Were there any, any other sick days that were significant? Um,
2: no, n- n- none that we could see, um, mm-hmm. and certainly none around the times of the murders. So, I mean, and that was the other, like trying to pinpoint his whereabouts, obviously uh, around the um, around the uh, specific days of, of when the girls missing and also Karakata, I mean that was, that was the, the third reason um, for, for bringing that evidence today
0: Damien, we've got a question from a listener um, which you may be able to answer they're wanting to know what happens at lunchtime when the, the court's adjourned does the accused go and sit with his lawyer, does he go down and get some lunch um, you know, what happens to him in those breaks?
1: So there's a, a little bit of freedom involved in that Nat, so um, it, and it, Essentially, for me as a lawyer, I would always ask my client if they wanted me to come and see them. It's available for the lawyer to go um, and see their client. Um, But some food's provided for the client as well, the the accused person, and they can have some lunch. But um, it's not uncommon for uh, counsel lawyers to go and meet with their clients during the lunch break because a lot's happened in the morning, so they can use that opportunity to just clarify a few instructions. So... um, it depends on on the environment, but it is available for them to meet. So it's quite and it's quite easy. an
2: important time as well, Damien, because access to clients otherwise, particularly as such a high security, sort of um, highly visible um, client, Mr. Edwards would be, um, access to him otherwise is quite restricted or quite hard to get.
1: Well, at this time, if I try to piece that together. Um, it'd be virtually impossible because um, there'd be no visiting hours for him mm-hmm. at the prisons um, for him after court or before court. There'd have to be a special application made for that. Mm-hmm. So that leaves, that would leave the weekends and any breaks in the court time or or ask for him to be held back at the courts for the, for that simple purpose. I don't know the specifics in relation to this matter, but the, the proposition you say,
2: Tim, is right.
0: Tim, is the public gallery as packed this week as it was last week?
2: Not quite as as packed, Matt. But I mean, as you say, there's this, this this the premiere of any uh, big show is all, always full, isn't it? And uh, yeah.
0: no
2: know, the, the gallery hasn't been as full this week, but certainly vastly more populated than than um, than any usual trial, even a high-profile one. Um, there uh, there are dozens of people still in the court, um, just just um, you know. Interested observers, apart from all, all of us media types, yeah. the police, and obviously um, the, the families. Um,
0: They're still attending. The they victim's are, families, um, uh,
2: but once again, not not as in uh, b- bigger numbers. Um, Dennis Glennon was was here again today, as were um, some other um, sort of. Um, extended family of of some of the other victims. Um, But, I mean, as we've mentioned so many times, it's such a long process, such a grueling process, such an emotional process. You wouldn't really expect um, everyone to be there every day.
1: Nat, can I ask you a question? Yes. Um, A lot of people have contacted me. With a lot of questions. Yes. Maybe it would be better if they directed the questions to the podcast generally. Is that possible?
0: Yes. So we actually have a new email address where people who are listening will be able to contact us directly. And we'll all be able to see those questions that come through. So that email address is Podcast at au. So Claremont Podcast, one word, at au. any questions you have any feedback that'll come through to all of us tim myself Damien, and um we'll try and answer them in the following day's podcast or if not the day after but at some point we will get to those uh questions that you've sent through and we do have quite a few who are still waiting so we'll get to you out there everyone um thank you both thanks for your hard yards today in the court tim
2: oh pleasure matt
0: Thanks, Damien.
1: Oh, I was doing hard yards as well. Oh, in <laughs> sure a different you were. courtroom my, somewhere and my, I thought of, than my... I thought of both of you and 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 um, but I did do some hard yards and it's good to be here. Thanks for having me
2: on board.
0: Thanks to you both, and we hope to have your company tomorrow for day nine.
2: This podcast was hosted by Natalie Bonjolo, produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy, and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au